Scripture for the sermon this morning is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law but that which, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and that I may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's go before the Lord and pray on this Easter day. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your height and your humility. We thank you so much for being willing to let go of what was rightly yours in heaven and for emptying yourself and taking on flesh and coming to this earth and living the life of a servant and being obedient to your Father all the way to death on a cross. And we thank you for the power that brought you back from death. We thank you for the power that caused you to ascend to the right hand of the Father. We thank you for the grace in your heart that causes you to be our intercessor 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every single day of the year, forever and ever. We thank you for the heart that called our names by name and caused us to enter into your resurrection life and how I pray today, Lord, that we would gain insight into what you've done and to how important it is. And I pray that we would gain affection for you and what you have done. And I pray that we would gain a will to surrender our will to you. Oh, Father, to gain Christ is the major call of life. And I pray that today you would use your word and you would use this servant of yours to that end. Father, I thank you for what you have done in Christ. I thank you for what you are doing in Christ. I thank you for what you've done in this service already. And I thank you for what you'll do now through the word as it is preached by faith in the name of Jesus Christ. High and holy and happy, we pray. Amen. These three words might be the most powerful words that were ever spoken in the history of the earth. They're simple words. It is finished. Powerful words, huh? Although Jesus Christ was in very nature God, he considered his position and his prestige and his power as God not as something that he had to grasp onto, not as something that he had to strain to keep, but he had such deep hope and trust and security in his Father, that he willingly gave all of that up for a time. And he emptied himself out and he came to this earth and he took on flesh. And having become a human being, he decided not to be a power broker on the earth. He decided not to be a powerful business person or a king or a governor or someone who wields great influence in an earthly fashion. Rather, he decided to become a servant. The high and holy God who created the universe with nothing more than his words decided to manifest himself among us as a servant. And being a servant, Jesus became obedient to his Father all the way until that day when he heard his Father say, Son, it's time. It's time for you to go to Jerusalem. 
It's time for you to willingly take up your cross. It's time for you to willingly let your own people put you to death. It's time for you to let the Gentiles subject you to their cruel punishments. It's time for you to let the wrath of the Father against the sin of the earth be poured out upon you in full. My son, it's time. Beloved, if anyone understood the enormity of that command, it was Jesus. If anybody understood the extent of the wrath that was about to be poured out on him for the sins of the world, it was Jesus Christ. If anybody grasped the impossibility of obeying the Father at this point, it was Jesus. And yet for the love of his Father, mainly for the love of his Father, but then also for the love of sinners just like you and just like me, for the love of people who had no other hope than him, for the love of people who had no other way to achieve forgiveness and refreshed communion with God. Jesus Christ obeyed his Father. He went to Jerusalem. He took up his cross. He suffered and he died. And and somehow, some way, in the midst of an unexplainable, uncomprehensible pain on the cross, He found a way to take a breath and say, it is finished. It is done. The sacrifice has been made. Oh, beloved, the power of those three precious words. That happened on a Friday evening, as most of you know. And that night, Jesus was put in a grave. But Jesus doesn't take kindly to graves. He is not comfortable there. He doesn't embrace death. And so on the third day, early on a Sunday morning, when one of his followers went to see him at the tomb, she found that he was not there. And as she stood there trying to process what her eyes did not see, an angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, why are you looking for him here? He is not here. And then the angel spoke three more words that may in fact be the most powerful words that were ever spoken in the history of the earth. I I can't tell which is which. The angel said to her, he is risen. He is not here. It is finished. Death is conquered. It is over. In a sense, the words it is finished and the words he is risen are two sides of the same coin. They're saying the exact same thing. And because these things are so beloved, anyone who believes in Jesus Christ from this day, from that day forward, will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Jesus lived the perfectly righteous life. He made the sacrifice for sins. He overcame death. So anybody who believes in him is now counted as a perfectly righteous person before God. If you believe in Christ, your sins are wiped away. If you believe in Christ, your shame is removed before God. If you believe in Christ, your crippled body, your crippled soul is made whole again. And yes, yes, we may have to suffer for a little time here. But believe me, when we see Christ face to face, it will seem to us like a very, very, very little time because the Lord has done it. He has conquered. He has overcome. And whoever believes in him is essentially clothed in him so that all the blessings of God the Father that are bestowed upon the Son are now also bestowed upon us. If you believe in Christ, welcome to your new life. This is you, showered absolutely showered in the grace of God forever and ever and ever. Is that good news or what? 
Isn't life heavy sometimes? I mean, life is just sometimes is so heavy. But towering over the heaviness of life is this amazing news in Jesus Christ that the grace of God is bathing us and it will bathe us forever and ever and ever and ever. We will never come to an end of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. This is the power of the cross, beloved. This is the power of those words. It is finished. It's done. Because of the power of these things in his life, so many years later, the great Apostle Paul said that above everything in his life, he wanted just this. He wanted to know Christ and the power of his resurrection He wanted to know the fellowship of of the sufferings of Christ. He wanted to become like Christ in his death, which probably sounds a little funny to us. Probably doesn't sound like great news. It probably doesn't sound like a a wonderful ambition. What do you want to be when you grow up? Well, I want to join Christ in his death. But it's a most powerful thing. You know what Paul was saying? Paul was saying, I want to join Christ in emptying out my life for the glory of God and the good of others. I want to join Christ in letting go of every other hope in life, save God the Father. I want to join Christ in knowing what it means to obey my Father all the way to the day of my death, no matter what the cost, no matter what the consequence. I want to die to my flesh along with Christ And having died along with Christ, I also want to know what it means to live with him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to be a participant in the resurrected life of Christ. Do you see what Paul's saying? Paul did not want just to admire Jesus for having risen from the dead. Paul did not simply want to be amazed at the scientific realities of what it meant that Jesus raised from the dead. And by the way, I very much believe, I'm, a, I'm an intellectual man, I read lots of books, I think a lot in my life, and I am deeply, powerfully persuaded that all the preponderance of evidence shows that Christ has been raised from the dead. I am persuaded And I would love to talk with any of you about this, whether you're persuaded or not. The evidence is there. But Paul wanted more than just to be amazed with facts. You see, he wanted to participate in the resurrection himself. What Paul was saying is, someday, after I die, I want to hear those words. Paul, rise up again. I want to know I want to know in actual experience, in my actual body, I want to know the power of his resurrection. Beloved, this was Paul's holy ambition. This is what gripped him in his life. This is what drove him day by day by day. What's driving you right now? What's motivating you right now? When you think about what you're going to do after church, what's on your mind? What's occupying your brain space right now? When you wake up in the morning, what's going to drive you to do whatever it is that you do? What are your hopes? What are your dreams? Paul's holy ambition was this. I must gain Christ at any cost, at any consequence. I want to die with him that I might live with him. Because if I have Christ, I have everything. And this was not only Paul's ambition for himself, but this was Paul's ambition for those he had led to know Christ. Paul spent his life going from one place to another preaching Christ, and many came to know Jesus. Many came to have eternal life in Jesus. 
Paul mentored them. Paul helped them build their churches up. Paul gave his life for these precious souls. And he wanted them to have this one ambition with him as well, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. He wanted them to join Christ in his death that for some way, in, in, in some, by some means, that they would attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, there was an issue here, though. There were problems within, there were problems without. On the one hand, there were people in his beloved friends' lives who were trying to distract them away from trusting in Christ alone, and they were trying to persuade them to trust in their own accomplishments before God to earn their salvation. Paul saw this as a deadly threat to faith in Christ. He saw this as a deadly threat to living a resurrection life. And the other problem is that the very hearts of the believers themselves, in our own hearts right now in this very room, there's actually something in us that wants to boast in the presence of God. We want to be able to say, God, I'm a good person, that's why you should accept me. You know, I was just thinking this morning as we were worshiping some years ago, I don't even remember how many years ago now, after the Easter service in this very room, our family went down to my father-in-law's place for Easter dinner and I got a phone call from a, a friend of mine who was a drug addict with me for years and years and years and he had come to Christ. After 25 years of praying, he had come to Christ. And I was just thinking as we were worshiping that I got to call him this afternoon and say, in a way, this is our anniversary together. It was Easter, the first time that we ever celebrated in Jesus together. But I was remembering back. I was remembering back to who I was at that time. And I was remembering that even in my sickened, drug-addicted state, I was saying to God, listen, I'm not as bad as that guy. I didn't do what that guy did, so you should accept me. This is the sickness of the human heart. We want to commend ourselves before God. Paul saw this as a deadly, deadly threat to the gospel. He saw this as a deadly threat to living the resurrected life. And so he wrote to his precious friends, and God, by his grace, preserved these words for us. So if you look with me now at Philippians chapter three, verse two, let's just work our way through this whole chapter today and see what Paul has to say to us about living in the resurrection. He writes, Looks out, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul was referring here to a group of people who were traveling around from city to city and they were going from church to church, the very churches that Paul had started and probably others as well. And they were trying to convince people that in order to be a Christian you had to live as a Jew. They were trying to persuade people that in order to be pleasing to God, you had to keep all the details of the law that had come through Moses. Or if I could put it another way, they were trying to persuade people that they had to earn their standing before God. They had to be able to commend themselves before God. They had to be able to say, I obeyed this and I obeyed that and I did this and I did that and I avoided this and I avoided that. I kept every dot and tittle of the law. That's why you should accept me. See, this was another gospel. They were trying to persuade people to trust in themselves rather than to trust in the all-sufficient sacrifice of God. And I want to tell you, they were very persuasive people, very persuasive. 
First of all, if you can imagine a new church so, just somewhere in the world, people who weren't particularly rich or, 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 or well endowed in any way, shape, or form, really, and these teachers show up from Jerusalem and they're dressed in such a way as to communicate authority. They're dressed in such a way as to communicate that they have been educated, they have pedigree, and they teach in a way that they should be listened to. Just their presence would have been intimidating is what I'm saying. Then much more importantly, these people were very well educated in the Bible. Many of them had probably memorized the first five books of the Bible. They were well educated in Jewish traditions. They were well educated in Jewish history. And when they made their argument that you should trust in your obedience to the law for your salvation before God, they would have been very, very persuasive. I think even the best among us would have found it tempting to believe them. This was so much so that in Acts chapter 15, we read of a time when even the Apostle Paul left the mission field, which if you know anything about Paul, that ought to just make you take a step back and say, wow. I mean, this guy was gripped with a passion to preach Christ among the nations. He did not want to take a break. And yet he took a break from that work to go back to Jerusalem to argue this point because it was that serious to him. It was a different gospel in his mind. He went to Jerusalem to gather with other Christian leaders to to talk this through and to come to a point of resolution. At the end of the day, Paul and those who were like-minded with Paul won the day because they were the ones properly interpreting the gospel. And, And all they were saying is that the only way to be right with God is to trust in Jesus Christ alone. And if you trust in Jesus Christ alone, the law of God is written on your heart and you don't need to follow all the dot and tittle of the law that's written, especially in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In fact, the Jews had tried this for 13, 1400 years and did it work? Were they successful at it? I mean, we've been going through 1 Samuel for the last months and months. How are the Jews doing with this? It didn't work for them. It wasn't going to work for new Christians, and it certainly won't work for us. But, beloved, Paul won the day, but I want you to understand that the, the final verdict was actually very close. If you remember Acts chapter 15, it wasn't until the very end of the chapter when one of the brothers stood up and made the a final argument that the whole room was persuaded and tilted towards Paul's side. Even the best minds among the early church were wondering, huh, I wonder if we have to justify ourselves before God by obeying the law in order to be pleasing to him. Praise be to God that Paul and his like-minded friends won the day. They sent out a letter to all the churches and all the churches rejoiced in the news. But the sad thing is that this group of teachers that lost that day, they did not stop teaching what they were teaching. They kept going from city to city. They kept going from church to church. They kept trying to persuade people that the only way to be right with God is to commend yourself before God. It was a deadly, deadly thing. And can you now see, added to their bad teaching was now arrogance. Can you see that? The great council of the church had come to a verdict and these people would not submit. They they had arrogant hearts, not humble hearts. This is why, I don't know if you were a little shocked, because in our day, we don't really talk about people this way, unless you say something like, hey, what's up, dog, something like that. But generally, we don't call people dogs. But Paul called these people dogs. 
And you remember in his day, dogs were not pets. This was not a compliment. Dogs were wild animals. They were tall rats. They were not something you wanted around you. Dogs, these are evildoers. These are mutilators of the flesh. These are people who are trying to get Gentiles to have to be circumcised in order to be Christians, and they would not stop. They would not stop. And so Paul wrote with passion to his beloved friends at Philippi, and he knew that that letter would be passed around to others, and he pled with them to think carefully about the gospel. And as I said earlier, God preserved these things for us so that we would think carefully about the gospel. Believe me, the story I've been telling you is about us. It's not just about them. We are all prone to want to justify ourselves in the sight of God by ourselves. So let's take a little bit of time now and just see how Paul, how he made his argument uh, against these people. Let's see how he sought to persuade these precious people away from this kind of teaching and toward the Lord. Paul basically said this in verse four, if you'll look there. He said, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. In other words, he's saying, if you wanna play the boasting game, I can play that game. And guess what, I will win. I have more to boast about than anybody, even the other apostles. And then to prove his point, he lists seven specific things, all right? Seven things. Number one, he says that as was supposed to be the case with every good Jew, Paul was circumcised when he was eight days old. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying that from my earliest days, I was submitted to the law of God. From my earliest days, I was a zealous Jew. Before I even had a consciousness of the fact that I was alive, I was underneath the law. I could boast about that. Number two, Paul was a bona fide citizen of the nation of Israel, and he could prove it. There were plenty of people claiming that in his day, but not everybody could prove it. Paul could prove it. Number three, Paul was a member of the tribe of Benjamin, and you'll remember that he originally bore the name of Saul, right? And who else's name was Saul in the Bible? It was the first king of Israel, wasn't it? And that first king of Israel was also of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul could boast in that. He could certainly boast in that. Number four, Paul was what he called the Hebrew of the Hebrews. This probably means that he grew up as an Aramaic-speaking Jew that grew up in the general area of Palestine rather than as a Jew who was scattered among the nations and spoke Greek and did not speak Aramaic and did not know much about the original languages of the Bible. What he's saying is, I am a dyed-in-the-wool Jew. I am not some kind of deluded Jew in any way, shape, or form. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I am what I am all the way. And if you want to get into a boasting contest, I I can do that, and I will probably win. Number five, when it came to faithfulness to the law of Moses, Paul was a Pharisee, which was like saying that he was like a spiritual Navy SEAL or like a spiritual Green Beret. Paul had voluntarily joined with the strictest, most legalistic religious sect of his day, and he rose to the top. He studied with a man named Gamaliel, who is so famous that he's even known beyond biblical circles. He's known even beyond Jewish circles. Even Greek philosophers talked about Gamaliel. He was very famous. Paul studied under him. He was a prize student. He was at the top of his class. He was a Pharisee. When it came to having passion for the things of God, nobody was Paul's equal. He was a persecutor of the church. And what I hear him saying is that he was so passionate for truth as the Jews saw it, 
that when he saw compromise of that truth, he was willing to go out and debate with people. He was willing to go out and punish people. He was willing even to go out that some people might die for compromising the truth. Now, there's plenty of us in this room that have a kind of passion for the truth, but how many of us are that zealous? How many of us would go out into the world specifically to argue and to punish those who are deluding truth? All Paul is saying is, you wanna talk about passion? I had passion, and I had it in spades. When it comes to living a righteous life before God under the law, Paul said that he was blameless, and he did not hereby mean that he was a perfect man. Rather, he was saying, as it is said of other people in the Bible, that he was blameless with regard to keeping the law. All he's saying is that even when it comes to the sacrifices that had to be made for his sins, he did it all. He was a perfect student. He would have had a 4.0 grade average when a 4.0 was hard to earn. He would have graduated summa cum laude. Every Jew would have looked to him and said, now that's a man who's obedient to the law. Beloved, Paul had a lot to boast about. If anyone wanted to enter into a boasting contest, Paul would win that contest. If anybody felt the temptation to boast in himself before God, it was Paul. He had a lot to brag about. And because this is so, it seems to me that Paul understood better than anyone how tempting it is to boast in oneself before God. It seems to me that Paul understood better than anyone how the human heart is very impressed with itself how the human heart thinks that it's better than others, or at least better than enough others, that it will be counted right with God. Paul knew these things so well from the inside out. He knew that they were a great, great threat to the true gospel of God, and so he did everything that he could. He made every effort that he could make to help his precious friends avoid trusting in their flesh and to boast in Christ alone instead. So having laid out his boasts, he continues in verses 7 through 11, and let's read again what Jordan read for us. With all that in mind now, Paul said, but whatever gain I had, all of those seven things, all the gain that I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And by the way, those are, in the Greek language, those are technical financial terms. What I had as an asset, I now put in my debt column. Whatever was gain, I now count loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. I put everything in the debt column because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, count them as trash, count them as something just to be thrown away in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, through trusting in Christ, through hoping in Christ, through clinging to Christ alone, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, simple belief, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So let's take just a few minutes to think through Paul's logic here. And I wanna begin by asking a question, namely, why did Paul count his gains as loss? Why did he do that? I mean, wasn't 
wasn't there something redeemable in the things that he listed? Wasn't there something redeemable in being an Israelite? Wasn't there something redeemable in being a Benjamite? Wasn't there something redeemable in his education? Wasn't there something redeemable in his zeal, in his passion, in his love for the word of God? Was there nothing at all redeemable? My answer to that question, I would love to hear yours too because I'm just musing about these things. I would love to hear what you have to say. But my answer for now is that Paul considered his gains as loss because as commendable as they were, and in some sense they really were commendable, they weren't even close to being able to deal with the powerful problem of his sin. There's no way that his righteous acts could overcome the weight of the penalty he owed to God for his unrighteous acts. In fact, trying to use these things to justify himself before God would have made the problem worse because to all of his sins he would have added this, a very great pride, a very great pride. Can you imagine standing in God's sight and saying, God, I'm, I'm good enough that you should really let me in because really, Lord, I'm just, I'm that amazing. And maybe not all of us would put it in that way, but that's basically what we would be saying. And that is a great pride. It's a great, great offense to God. To boast in these things is loss because it adds to the sin problem, you see? I don't think there's anything wrong in Paul just saying, listen, I'm an Israelite, that's what God made me to be, I thank God for that. See, that's one thing. I don't think there's anything wrong with Paul saying, I got a very good education, God's used it in my life. I wrote Romans, I wrote 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, all these other books. I don't think I could have done that without my education. I thank God for it. I thank God for those things. That's one thing. It's another thing to say to God, Lord, because I'm an Israelite, because I'm educated, because, 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 you should let me into your kingdom. You should wash away my sins. You should make me right with you. Paul counted his gains as loss simply because they would have made the problem much, much worse. Beloved, our sin is very serious. It's much more serious than any of us think, and there's not one of us that's lived long enough or thought hard enough about any of these things to to ever even begin to see the enormity of the problem of our sins. And our sins have to be measured not according to the details of what we've done or, or by comparing ourselves to what others have done or have not done, Our sins have to be measured against the standard of who we have sinned against. Does that make sense? So if I was to leave church today, and let's say Kim and I were just walking down the street and we met somebody and we began talking to them, and for some reason I thought it would be a good idea to lie to them about something or other, that would not be good before God, it would not be good before him, it would not be good before my wife, it would not be good at all. But I would not be censured, I would not be fined, I would not be imprisoned, really nothing much would happen to me. Because it's just a person that I met on the street, I don't know him, he doesn't know me, it happened, it's over. However, if for some reason I was called to testify before the Supreme Court of the United States and I was sworn in that I was gonna tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and before that dignified court I decided to lie, and I was caught in my lie, then my sin would be very great. And to the extent that my lie was found out, I would be censured, I would be fined, I would be imprisoned, or some combination of those three things. You see, the, the dignity of the one you sin against is the measure of your sin. Now, in some ways, my illustration breaks down because that person on the street that I lied to is made in the image of God. So in lying to somebody who's made in the image of God, I have sinned against God. 
And my sin is as great against him as it would be against the Supreme Court. But I'm just saying in, in real daily life, nothing would actually happen to me. I'd just go on with my life. But again, if I lied to the Supreme Court, there would be a price to pay. Imagine that I went before the court and said, listen, you caught me, you're right, I perjured myself, I lied in your presence. However, I'm a good person. I live a good life, I have a decent job, I have a home, I have a family, I contribute to society. This lie is not all that there is to my life, there's much more to my life, so please just let me off on this one and and let me go. The Supreme Court, in order to protect its dignity, would have to say no to my request. They would have to say, that's all well and good, but it's beside the point. The Supreme Court of the United States is the most dignified court on the face of, in the face of this country. And in order to preserve our dignity, we cannot allow people to lie here. We cannot allow people to commit perjury and get away with it. And so you shall be punished. The sin that we commit, beloved, has to be measured against the standard of who we have sinned against. And believe me, if we stand before God and try to use this same tactic, it will not work. If we try to stand before God and say, yes, Lord, I've sinned, however, I've done this, I've done that, I've done this good thing, I've done that good thing, I'm a good person, I've accomplished X, Y, and Z, it's simply not gonna work. In fact, it's going to add to all our offenses, pride. The offense of just one sin against God is greater than any of us can imagine. Uh, Just think about Adam and Eve. They did one thing, and by the way, it wasn't that crazy of a thing. It's not like they murdered a village or something like that. They ate a piece of fruit, right? And I've told you before, the tradition says it's an apple, but I think it was a watermelon, because I like watermelon a lot better. I would have been more tempted by watermelon. But it doesn't really matter what the fruit was. The point was they broke the heart of God when they broke the command of God. They didn't trust him. They didn't believe in him. They said, did God really say? Did God really say? And they walked outside of the will of God. And when they walked outside of the will of God in that one little thing, the whole human race fell. The whole human race fell. Havoc was wreaked upon creation. One sin, beloved. And I don't know about you, but I would freely, openly, gladly confess that I have sinned a lot more than just one time. And I need more before God than to commend myself to God. My righteous works are like trash. They're like garbage. They are nothing before God because my offense against him is very great. I somehow need a payment for my sins that is greater than my sins. And the truth of the gospel is that the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross and the power that raised him from the dead is the only payment that will work. However, it will work. It is finished. And whoever believes in Jesus Christ, turns away from boasting in their flesh to boast in Christ alone. That person will be justified before God. That person will be forgiven. That person will be set free. That person will be treated as though they had never sinned. That person will be restored to a perfect fellowship with God, both now and forevermore. And our joy will increase and increase and increase in him forever and ever and ever. Beloved, we need a great payment, but Christ made that great payment. He made that great payment and there now is a way to be right with God. And this is why Paul said that his great holy ambition was to gain Christ at any cost, beloved. To gain Christ at any cost because the loss of everything is essentially the loss of nothing. And the gaining of Christ 
is the gaining of everything. The way that we gain Christ is so upsetting to our fleshly sensibilities because we want to work for our salvation. This is the natural religion of our hearts to earn our way to God. But the Lord says this, listen, your only work is to believe in Jesus Christ whom the Father has sent. That's it. Your only work is to stop working for your salvation and to start resting in the one who has done everything necessary to earn your salvation. That's it. We live by simple faith in Jesus Christ. The finished work of Christ is the only hope in this life. So beloved, the call for today is to gain Christ at any cost. The call for today is to empty Paul, uh, to, to imitate Paul, and to empty ourselves of any fleshly boast that remains inside of us, any case that we would imagine ourselves making before God other than Christ. We need to die to that. The call upon us today is to let go of any position or power or prestige that we have that we think will gain us something before God call upon us today is to look to Christ and hope in Christ and cling to Christ with both of our heart, our arms. Our, the call upon us today is desire more than just to admire the resurrection, but to greatly desire to enter into the resurrection, that we might die with Christ and one day hear our names called Charlie. Rise from the grave, rise into everlasting life with your God. And your father, oh beloved, this was Paul's holy ambition and he wants it to be, I think the Lord wants it to be, our holy ambition. Gain Christ at any cost. Give up anything you have to give up to gain Christ. It will be worth it. Please look with me now at verse 12. I want to read from verse 12 all the way to chapter 4, verse 1. And I'm going to make some comments along the way and just sort of try to help us understand Paul's logic here. Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or that I'm already perfect. And by the way, in his day, there were actually teachers going around claiming that they had already been perfected. So Paul's like, that's not me. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has already made me his own. In other words, Paul was not trying to earn something that God had already given to him. He was just trying to embrace what Christ had already done for him. He was pressing on with passion. He was pressing on with vigor. But all he was pressing on to do was to rest in what Jesus Christ had already done, what Christ had already earned. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own. I have yet to reach the finish line of my own death and resurrection in Christ. But this one thing I do, and I do it every single day of my life, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward. The Greek word there is picturing a runner that's leaning forward to, to win the race. I'm straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's talking about the day when God would call his name and say, Paul, rise from the dead. He wanted to know the power of Christ's resurrection in his actual body. Verse 15, let those of us who are mature Think this way. Let the mature understand that Christ is the greatest prize and to gain him is to gain all. And if in anything you think otherwise, well then God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. In other words, he's saying, turn away from those dogs. 
who are trusting in themselves and turn toward me and other people like me who are trusting in Christ. Paul is not saying, listen, I'm so amazing that you should be like me. That is not what he's saying. Paul is saying, I have flung my entire self upon Christ. Join me in doing that. That's all he's saying. Join me in putting all of your hope, all of your chips in Christ. Hold nothing back for anything else. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, not with arrogance but with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. These are people that are boasting in things that would seem good to us, but their glory was only shame before God. But for us, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers and my sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord. Put all of your hope in the Lord. Put all of your trust in the Lord. Make all of your boasts in the Lord, my beloved. If I could put all of that into a single sentence, maybe I'm hitting the mark here, maybe I'm not, but this is how it came to me. I would just say that the point of today's passage is this. See the surpassing worth of Christ and press on to gain Christ at any cost. If you're a note taker, please write that down. Please meditate upon it. Please think about it. Please live it. See the surpassing worth of Christ and press on, press on, press on. Lean forward into Christ. Gain him at any cost, at any consequence. This is our only hope before God. But beloved, it's a great hope indeed. To say that Christ is our only hope is to say that we have an infinitely great hope. And so if you're here today on Easter Sunday and you don't know Jesus Christ, you, you don't believe in him, you're not walking with him, I want to lovingly, gently plead with you to look to him for the forgiveness of your sin and the restoration of your relationship with God. You, like me, might think that you already are in a relationship with God. Before I knew Jesus Christ, I thought I was already okay with God. But when I read the Bible, I learned that I was not okay with God, that my sin was greater than I thought it was. And so maybe you have a kind of connection to God, but I'm telling you, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are not forgiven and you are not in fellowship with God. The Lord has you here today to hear a hopeful message that Christ died for you, that Christ raised for you, and that if you will boast in Christ alone before God, that's going to work. When you stand before your maker and answer for your life and you say, listen, the only reason you should accept me is because I trusted in your son, Jesus Christ. The Lord is gonna say, come, welcome into the eternal happiness of your God, into the eternal happiness of your master. And I'm not here to pressure you or to push you in any way, shape, or form, but I am here to plead with you to say, believe in Christ. Think about Christ. See the surpassing worth of who Jesus is and do anything you have to do to gain him. If you're here today and you do believe in Christ, but as we've been talking about these things, you've had to admit to yourself that there's at least a part of you that's still boasting in your pedigree. You're born as a Christian, you went to a certain school, you've done certain things, you work in a certain kind of ministry, whatever. You're actually preparing your heart to boast before God. I wanna encourage you strongly 
to understand that this is a different gospel in your heart than the gospel of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I wanna encourage you to meditate carefully upon the words of Paul and let the word of God pierce you, open you up, heal you, and change you until you boast in nothing but Christ alone. Beloved, every one of us has at least a part of our hearts that's still boasting in ourselves, every one of us. So I pray that we would let the word of God do its work in us today and that we would learn to rest in Jesus alone. If you're here today, and as you've heard this message, you have to say that not perfectly, but primarily, you are trusting in the work of Christ alone. You have no hope in your flesh. Maybe you've tried that and it didn't work so well and you've just surrendered yourself to Christ and said you are all I have but in having you I have all. If that's you, then I wanna encourage you especially to meditate on verses 12 through chapter four, verse one. And here's my call to you. Meditate on what Paul said until the passion that gripped his heart is the passion that grips your heart. Read from verse 12 to the end of the chapter and then, and then chapter four, verse one, and just ask your heart the question, heart, do you have that kind of passion for Jesus? Are you that gripped by Jesus? When you wake up in the morning, is everything in your heart saying, give me Jesus, give me Jesus, give me Jesus? Oh, beloved, meditate upon the word of God. Let the resurrected Christ grip your heart and your life and go after him with all you have. The Lord isn't here today to just have us hear another message on another Easter. We're not here today just to admire Jesus or be, to be amazed at the scientific facts of his resurrection. He wants us to enter into his resurrection. So please join me, please join me, putting your heart before the word of God letting Paul's passion by the Holy Spirit become our passion. On Friday night, while Jesse Doss was sharing his thoughts on the final words of Jesus, which I found very, very moving, by the way, a little poem came to my mind, and I was racing to scribble it down before I forgot it, and it's been on my heart ever since. It's not a great poem. I'm not a great poet, but I do want to share this with you because it's helped me to sort of summarize all of this and to keep this in my heart. Later today or tomorrow, I'm gonna put this up on our church blog. If it's helpful to you, it'll be here. But here's how it goes. Turn away from self and cease. Turn away from fleshly please. Turn away from all but Christ, who made the awesome sacrifice. Gain Christ at any cost. Gain Christ and bear your cross. Gain Christ and die with him, for you will surely rise again. You will surely see his faith, face. You will surely bathe in grace. You will surely hear his voice. And with the angels, you'll rejoice forever. Let's pray. Our God and Father, I thank you so much for loving the world so much that you would send your only begotten son into the world to live a perfectly righteous life and to die a heinous death on the cross and to be raised again from the dead. Thank you, our Father, for making a way to salvation for all who will believe. Thank you for the power of the cross. Thank you for the power of the resurrection. Thank you for the power of his ascension. Thank you for the power of the truth that all we have to do is rest in Christ and rest in Christ alone. And I pray now, Father, that as your words have been preached, your words would have great power in our lives. Teach us, Father, persuade us by the Holy Spirit and the logic of your word to rest in you alone 
and thereby to know your peace, to know your joy both now and forevermore. Father, I thank you for working powerfully in our midst today. And now we rise to sing to you. We rise to give you the praise that is due to your holy name. And it is in Jesus' name, our risen Savior, that we pray. Amen.